So in light of all that has occurred in recent months that has drawn attention to the racial tensions in our country, it's more important than ever that we work to better understand and address inequity, especially racial inequity. And I think that one of the most powerful first steps toward an understanding that can lead to effective change is relationship. In particular, building cross-racial relationships by sharing stories of our experience with race and listening deeply to other people's stories. This is the kind of relationship that fosters the kind of compassionate understanding that we desperately need right now. So we're going to do something just a little bit different today. I have invited the Reverend Dr. Adama Brown to be with us. Those of you who participated in our recent book study, White Fragility, y'all have met Reverend Dr. Brown, and I know that y'all were as, as impressed with her as I am. We're longtime friends and colleagues. She's a former member of First United Methodist Church, which is where we met when I was their associate pastor. She's also a commissioned deacon in the United Methodist Church. And in her last years in Austin, before she moved to Boston, she served on the Amos Commission, which is the social justice arm of the Capitol District. And during her tenure there, she raised $20,000 in grant money to fund anti-racism work. Now she's a member of the New England Conference Commission on Religion and Race, where she is charged with conducting anti-racism training with clergy. She also works managing research and evaluation for United Way of Rhode Island using a race equity approach. Adama and I first preached a sermon duet like this on race five years ago when I served at Manchac UMC, and as we revisited this sermon in preparation for today, both of us were a little bit startled, startled by how relevant the topic still is and how sharing our stories in cross-racial relationships is even more urgent today than it was five years ago. So without further ado, Adama, let us hear your story. My siblings, grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Hear my story. I am the granddaughter of slaves and sharecroppers from Central Texas. Just one to two generations separated me from them. As a post-civil rights era kid, I grew up in an all-Black neighborhood on the east side of Austin where many of my neighbors faced tremendous life challenges. And one of the things that I remember quite distinctly about my life during that time was that my grandmother, my parents, and my teachers, all of whom were Black, did everything in their power to make sure that I heard their stories and that I understood the collective struggles of our peoples. So from my grandmother, I learned how my grandparents struggled as sharecroppers in Central Texas and how the spirit always seemed to help carry them through the rough times. From my parents, I learned about the ways that segregation impacted their lives and limited their options. And from my teachers, I learned about the Benjamin Bannockers, the Harriet Tubmans, the Frederick Douglasses, and the Shirley Chisholms. My family and my teachers taught me to appreciate my legacy and my giftedness, even when society did not. Now, my very coddled and secure life came to a screeching halt at the tender age of eight. That's when I, along with many of my other Black and Latinx classmates, behave the way that kids typically behave when there's a substitute teacher. We were a bit rowdy. 
the 20-something-year-old white female teacher had a hard time getting us to settle down. And in the last-ditch effort, she asked us to gather around so she could tell us a little story. Now, rather than pull out a book and begin to read to us, she started to ask questions. She said, have y'all heard of Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes, we said in unison. Have you ever heard of George Washington Carver and Barbara Jordan? Yes, we said again in unison. As she proceeded, we thought that she was going to tell us another fantastic story about some figure of Black history, but instead she did the unthinkable. She said the word that my parents had warned me about and tried to protect me from. She said to us, well, you know what? You're all acting like a bunch of Black niggers. Tears and silence replaced our rowdiness, and it was at that moment that I realized that the color of my skin and my race was not embraced by all. Church, grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Hear my story. I'm the granddaughter of World War II veterans and their wives, survivors of the Depression, blue-collar workers. Growing up, I heard their stories, the stories of my ancestors, the struggles that they experienced during a time when the men were away and the women went to work outside the home, work that was both patriotic because it sustained the country's productivity, but it was also practical. It put at least a little bit of food on the table. And I heard the stories of faith that sustained them in their experience and in their faith in a God through whom they had persevered was the assurance that I could do anything I set my mind to, despite the obstacles. I mean, I was, after all, a girl, and though I always had what I needed, we had little extra, at least until my early teens. In my earliest years, I was mostly unaware of the color of my skin. It wasn't something that I thought a whole lot about. Most of the people that I had any significant interaction with, they looked like I did. In Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, the population was roughly 70% white and 30% black. So though it was a post-civil rights and post-Jim Crow world, I rarely found myself in situations where I had the opportunity to relate to black people. My grandmother, she told me that all people are the same in the eyes of God, but I noticed that when black people came to their house to buy collard greens from my granddaddy's garden, they never came inside. I didn't ever ask, so I'm not exactly sure if it was because they were forbidden to do so by my grandparents or if it was because they chose not to. My blissful state of ignorance, along with any illusions I had regarding race, were shattered also at the tender age of eight. I was bused to an elementary school in the third grade where I became a minority by a fairly significant margin. My teacher and most of my classmates were black. I made some friends, but I also got picked on quite a bit. One day I was standing in line in the hallway when teasing became bullying and a boy in my class shoved me into a radiator. I ended up with second degree burns on my lower abdomen the teacher saw the whole thing, but she acted like she hadn't, and she maintained that must have been an accident. And you know, I don't recall her being mean or spiteful at all. I mean, she was not out to get me. I honestly think she was afraid 
that's what I saw through my tears of pain and frustration. I saw fear in her eyes. You know, as I look back on that memory now, I can only imagine how risky it might have felt for her at the thought of telling the parents of a white girl that a black boy had hurt her. Regardless of her intentions or my inability to fully articulate it at the time, I knew as a result of that experience that because of the color of my skin, I wasn't always safe. Because of the differences in the color of our skin for both me and my teacher, the stakes were really high, so high that the truth was concealed. The result for me was that I no longer trusted that I was safe in the company of those with darker skin than mine. And not just physically at risk, but emotionally and relationally, I didn't trust that I would be welcomed or accepted by Black people. During the past several months, we've heard many stories. Much has been debated and written about the loss of Black lives at the hands of both civilians and police officers in some of our nation's largest cities. The stories of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamar Rice, Laquan McDonald, Eric Gardner, the Charleston Nine, Sandra Bland, Baltham Jean, Tatiana Jefferson, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and many others have filled the social media and other news spheres. Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe have become popular hashtags and many throughout this country, even there in Austin, Texas, have questioned why these stories even matter, why they're even important. And even after hearing the stories of how two Southern girls, eight-year-old girls, one white and one black, have experienced awareness, some may still wonder why this all matters. You know, I think it matters because each of these stories, Trayvon's, Michael's, Eric's, Tatiana's, Ahmad's, Floyd's, Adama's, mine, all of our stories are connected. All of them are part of a larger narrative of systemic racial oppression, a narrative that spans centuries, at least centuries of systemic racial op oppression that pervades our society Right here in Austin, in 1928, when Austin mapped out its master plan to develop the city, racism was built in as it segregated the, the city by race, perpetuating racial and economic disparities. And in the past 10 years, right here in Austin, more than a dozen unarmed men of color have lost their lives at the hands of police officers in the streets of, uh, in the streets of Austin. These stories reflect a system that has resulted in hurt feelings, it's resulted in physical harm, even lives cut short. It's a system that breeds a distrust that keeps us from each other. It keeps us from God. Given all that has transpi transpired at the local and national level, how do we change the system? I mean, how do we transform as people? How, how are we transformed? During the scripture reading, we heard verses from Paul's letter to the Galatians. In it, he reminds us, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. Now, some scholars believe that this text may have been a well-known baptismal confessional that Paul revised in order to make a very specific point to new Christians. 
maybe his reinterpretation of the text was his way of letting Christians know that any negative beliefs they held about other groups simply could not exist as soon as they became one in Christ. A person's cultural, economic, or gender is no longer important. It's one's connection and one's love of Christ that matters most. These verses also define our current reality, not one that is yet to come. The characteristics that form our social identities are not lost by becoming a part of the Christian community. Rather, we are called through our oneness in Christ to be in relationship with each other. A failure to live out our oneness in Christ creates barriers to our relationship with spirit and with each other. In recent years, and especially in the past few months, we have seen our relationship with each other break down along racial lines. The tension has become heightened in ways that I haven't seen in perhaps more than 20 years. Something must give. And I wish I could stand before you today and say that my encounter with my third grade substitute teacher was the extent of my experiences with racism. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case, and I could tell you all so many more stories. During the years leading up to middle school, I remained fairly protected, but yet the walls came tumbling down again when I was bused from East Austin to a middle school in Northwest Austin. Because of my standardized test scores, I was placed in an honors program with other kids, all of whom were white. Suddenly, I was the most misunderstood kid in my school and on my neighborhood block. In addition to being subjected to blatant and not so blatant name calling by white kids, I was too ghetto, too economically deprived, not smart enough, despite my scores and grades, and not cultured enough to be in the honors classes or even grace the presence of their school. And to the black kids, I was trying to be white. I was too uppity, too smart for my own good, didn't have enough street credit to claim my rightful place in East Austin. And neither the white nor the black kids could understand my awkward tomboyish appearance. Oh my gosh, Adama, that sounds so hard. I can't imagine how painful that was or how that must have shaped who you are. Yeah, you know, the, the treatment I received from whites and blacks drove me to become one of the most driven, most militant, and at times most obnoxious black women is to walk the streets of Austin, Texas. I became, and I still am, a connoisseur of all things black from my heritage to history, to books, to movies, to food, and to whom I choose to love, my blackness matters. Black lives have always mattered to me. Mm -hmm. Now my militant black womanist persona didn't go unchallenged. Unfortunately, it created an incredible rift between me and the small number of white friends who I had who really did care about me and who really wanted to be friends with me. And as for the black kids, well, that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> but my persona afforded me little protection from things that I encountered in my young adult life, such as being pulled over by the police just because, from job discrimination, or from being followed in stores. My Black militancy days strangely coincided with my initial call to ministry and discernment. I began to realize that no matter how deeply I retreated into myself, I simply could not do the things that matter to most of me without some willingness to cross racial boundaries. Even today, Blacks, whites, Latinos, Native Americans, Asians, and others, they anger me when they show signs of racist ignorance. However, the bottom line is this. 
I simply cannot live a love without them. I am about to create new heavens and a new earth, God says. After more than 50 years of living in exile, Jews began to return from Babylon. It was not a particularly happy homecoming. Judah was devastated. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple, a heap of broken and decayed masonry. Many of their family and friends were dead or hadn't yet returned. It was a waste. Faced with the task of rebuilding from utter desolation, many, I imagine overwhelmed with feelings of futility and despair, turned from God. I mean, that's what we humans do sometimes, right? Especially in the face of despair. The chapters in Isaiah leading up to ours recount rampant injustice, infidelity to God, corrupt leaders, people were neglecting worship, they were ignoring the tenets of their faith, drinking to excess. Y'all, I wish I could say that my experience as an eight-year-old girl had launched me into a lifelong pursuit of racial equality. Frankly, the problem overwhelms me. I mean, when I see a string of images over the course of, I mean, this year, just a few weeks of African-Americans killed by white people and video footage of burning and looting, listen to all the political rhetoric and the conflicting news stories, y'all, I want to get drunk. The temptation is to bury my head in the sand or to side up or to entrench myself in a narrow view. I want to stay in Babylon. I mean, it might not be home. I may not be in the full presence of God, and I may be isolating myself from a large portion of the human race, but it sure does seem a whole lot easier and safer than stepping into what feels like a landscape of landmines. I don't know if you've ever watched Bones, but Dr. Temperance Brennan, also known as Bones, um, she expresses my fear perfectly. If you haven't seen the show, her IQ is off the charts. She's honest to a flaw. And she doesn't have a whole lot of social grace. She doesn't know how to express herself with diplomacy or compassion. In one episode, she's talking to her Hispanic best friend, Angela, and an African-American intern who asked her to settle a dispute that they're having about race. She instantly refuses. She says, no way am I getting sucked into that. As a white, privileged woman, anytime I enter into discussion about race with people of color, everybody just ends up yelling at me. Like the Israelites, like Bones, I struggle to know what to do. I'm afraid to share authentically. I feel at a loss about how to begin to rebuild. Many have raised questions about the best ways to move forward and work collectively to dismantle racial oppression. When I was a seminary student, my primary area of concentration was pastoral counseling and care. And throughout that training, I was encouraged to always start from a place of empathy and attentive listening when a care receiver approached me for the first time. It didn't matter if I'd ever experienced the care situation that was presented to me, but what did matter was being empathetic from the start. So for those who feel they may have never experienced racism, but they want to be supportive of friends who have, a good starting place is always empathy and compassion. Yeah, empathy takes vulnerability because you have to be willing to not only reveal who you are, but you have to be willing and open to receiving the other. Adama, 
I'm sorry, but you scare me. <laughs> I love you, but you terrify me just a little bit. I mean, I don't think you're going to slam me into a radiator, but I do worry that I'm going to say or do something offensive, something that it's going to make you think I'm racist and stop being my friend. <laughs> really, Pastor Sister Friend? <laughs> That's hilarious. If nothing else, I know your heart. And I know you love me and I love you. And so I realized that you would never intentionally hurt me. And you're the last person that I would call a racist. But hey, fear and anxiety, it works both ways. And it's a big risk. And so it even scares me at times to put my guard down and to engage people who are different from me. But it's a risk that I'm willing to take in order to be relationship with people and with spirit. Yeah, exactly. You're right. We have to risk it. I mean, ultimately, to alienate ourselves from each other is to alienate ourselves from God. Or at the very least, it's to limit the intimacy that we can experience with God. And we certainly, I just don't think we'll ever be able to move beyond racist systems without each other. And you know what else we need to do? We need to make small steps toward speaking out against racial injustice in a personally and in the church. Uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes of all times uh, is by a theologian who says that theology in the form of Christianity is the midwife of the racial imaginary. Theology in the form of Christianity is the midwife of the racial imaginary. In other words, Christianity has played a role in birthing many of the racial and racist ideas that we know today. And there's a great need for us to look at the church's role in racism and to work effectively to dismantle racism and systemic oppression. Yeah, you know, we can also take time to learn the definitions and the lexicon that are commonly used by racial justice advocates. There are great books out there. Um, for example, Ibram X. Kendi, he has a couple of books, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, or um, the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. Those are both great starting points. And it's also important if you look at the inequities and disparities in your city, your state, or even throughout the U.S., particularly when it comes to areas like income, home ownership, education, and health, take an opportunity to learn about policies, including municipal level policies. For instance, earlier, you know, Pastor Tracy talked about Austin's master plan, 1928 master plan, and that's what really created the pre-gentrified East Austin and laid the groundwork for many of the disparities that we know now. And also, there's varying levels of actions that you can take if you want to work toward becoming anti-racist. First, there's storytelling, much like what we've done today, by listening and sharing stories um, with others um, and with friends. Also consider the diversifying your reading and your information platforms, whether it's reading different books or websites or social media. Sign petitions that seek justice. Write to your elected officials. Support BIPOC businesses, that's Black, Indigenous, persons of color owned businesses. Uh, support organizations that are dedicated to racist equi racial equity and intersectional justice through your time, your treasure, and your presence. And in the year 2020, get out and vote. Because folks, we simply cannot strive to just simply listen to each other. We need to show empathy, we need to take risks, and above all, we need to speak out. 
I know it's easier said than done, but 100 years of injustice doesn't just disappear overnight. We all have a lot of work to do in order to truly make progress. Like the Israelites, I mean, until we turn back to God, any attempt to rebuild will seem overwhelming and ultimately it will be futile. We have to turn to God and we have to share our stories and begin to interpret or shape them in light of God's story. Ultimately, it's only God who can make all things new. It's only God who can bring heaven and earth together. It is only in the presence of God that all the hurt and the anger and the grief and the shame will pass away and make room for the heaven and earth that God creates the heaven and earth where in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free, male and female. The heaven and earth that God creates is where all of us are one. Hear my story and let me hear yours. If we listen with generous and humble hearts, we'll hear God's story too and become anew. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adama.